KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. So, how will a Joe Biden administration work with Congress? Of course, the level of polarization in this country is still incredibly high, but Joe Biden also has relationships in Congress due to his years as a senator from Delaware. Now, we wanted to take a look into this, so we reached out to Dr. Bill Rosenberg. He is a professor of political science at Drexel University. Give a listen. So, as we are transitioning, eventually into a Joe Biden, Kamala Harris uh, administration. What are your your hopes? What do you think uh, the relationship between the president-elect and Congress will be? Well, I think when we think about this relationship, it is still a little bit difficult to sort it all out because one of the major impacts is going to be what happens to the two senatorial races that are going to occur as runoffs in January. If those seats both went to the Democrats, then I think the relationship between the Congress and the president is going to be different than if only one or if none of them went. Because if the Democrats are unable to elect the two candidates, then Mitch McConnell will retain his role as Senate Majority Leader. And then we'll find basically probably a similar situation that we saw in 2008 with Mitch McConnell basically pledging to not let anything go through that he didn't like with Barack Obama. So that sets up a very contentious situation. If it is a situation where only one of the seats are gained, perhaps you might see from time to time some defections across party lines, particularly on non-central points. And ultimately, we have to recognize that if it does become a 50-50 Senate, then the tie goes to the Biden administration because Kamala Harris can break the tie. Does the fact that Joe Biden's roots are in the Senate and the longstanding relationships he has there, does that buy any goodwill, any tie goes to the runner or... As you said with Mitch McConnell, does it not really matter? It's just kind of the raw power and, you know, it is what it is. Well, I would say that we're presently in a situation where we have hyperpolarization. And what we've seen over the last 20 to 30 years is basically uh, the people in Congress, both the House and the Senate, that were more the moderates, the ones that were more in the middle, have gradually disappeared. And as a result, the Democrats are largely leaning pretty far to the left, and the Republicans are leaning pretty far to the right. Joe Biden, when he was in the Senate, had always had the reputation as being one of those moderates, the people in the middle that could work across the aisle with the Republicans. Uh, I think what he's going to face now is that there's not too many people that are going to be eager to work across the aisle, because what we've seen over the last four years is uh, Donald Trump using the power of the majority in the Senate to be able to get all of his judges put onto the Supreme Court, as well as lower courts, and being able to pass a lot of legislation that was very much supported also by Mitch McConnell, such as the major tax cuts that have come about. There always, though, is this sense of 
personal affinity so that Joe Biden, since he's been in the Senate since 1973, understands how the game is played. And also, we have to realize that Senator Kamala Harris, now vice president-elect, has also been in the Senate. So they're both experienced senators and legislators. If we take a look back at the last couple of years, Donald Trump had no experience in government, had never been elected to any office. And Mike Pence, while he was a member of Congress, has been out of Congress for quite a while and was on the talk show, radio show circuit as a sort of right-leaning pundit and then became the governor of Indiana and struck a very right-leaning sort of policy. So I think the fact that Biden and Harris both have the connection to members of Congress, particularly in the Senate, that should help them to some extent, particularly understanding the way the rules work, the way the committees operate, the personalities that are involved and so forth. But I'm not sure that at the end of the day, it's going to buy much goodwill simply because politics is so polarized. In the past, we've heard a lot about the first hundred days of an administration being the most important. Given the points you just made, is that kind of out the window as far as uh, working under the assumption that the Democrats don't win both Senate runoffs and we have divided government? Would it just be those first hundred days would be the first of 1,200 of what we would expect? Well, I actually think that Joe Biden has sort of uh, a vision of what's going to happen, at least early on in his administration. And he's already announced some of these things, like rejoining the climate uh, change uh, initiative worldwide and seeking to re-engage with the Iran nuclear deal. He also has put forward more of a diffuse, it doesn't necessarily have as much meat on the bones yet, but sort of a a pledge towards racial and economic equality or at least recognition of the facts that are on the ground to try and work out sort of new approaches. You know, his line was, we're not just going to build back, we're going to build better. So he's been honing those types of concepts. And also he has another initiative which while rejoining the the climate change issue internationally, his climate change policy program is not exactly what AOC and some of the more left-leaning members of Congress wanted. It has some of those elements. So we're going to have to see how the battle is fought not only with the Republicans in Congress, but between Democrats themselves. They're not all going to be on the same page. I'd also say that there is somewhat of a commitment that's been voiced by uh, President-elect uh, Biden to engage in issues which haven't been able to move forward over the past couple of years, but should have, such as infrastructure reform. So infrastructure reform is something that both Democrats and Republicans like. There's a lot of jobs that can be granted. It rebuilds our bridges and our roads and so forth. A lot of times, though, these issues have problems when you get into the weeds. In other words, who's going to be in control over letting the contracts go out, what politicians are going to get credit, and so forth. So 
that's a little bit more difficult of a collaboration with Republicans as some of the others. But the things that President-elect Biden can do when he goes into office, particularly with his use of executive orders, is really almost unrestrained. And he's going to quickly sort of, I think, move to reverse some of the policies that Donald Trump put into office, put into effect, uh, particularly things like DACA and issues dealing with immigration, that he's going to be able, with a stroke of his own pen, to reverse the policies that are in place. And he won't really have to deal that much with Congress on those issues. Overall, our continuing and evolving inability to legislate at the federal level how do we fix this? I mean, we we kind of all roll our eyes at a lot of this stuff, but we really are in suspended animation in a lot of ways. And I, I have concerns that a lot of these things that used to be, you know, quick votes about budgets and fiscal stuff, eventually one of these is going to really cause serious damage because of our polarization uh, how do we fix this? Can we fix this? Or do we need something terrible to happen for everybody to snap out of it? Well, I think one of the things we have to recognize is that when you heard the speech by Joe Biden, he was calling for sort of uh, a, uh, a peace offering to be made by both sides. And he made it clear that it wasn't just the Republicans had to come and uh, do what the Democrats want, but the Democrats were going to have to basically sort of modify some of their positions to be able to get workable solutions. The question is whether or not those on the left and those on the right are going to be willing to cooperate and compromise with each other. And as I mentioned a little while ago, that a lot of those people that were in the middle are basically not there anymore. I would also say that one of the problems that happened as a result of this election, at least from my standpoint, is that the answers to what is America thinking is not really that clear, okay? It ends up that there was a hope by the Democrats that they were going to win more of the Senate seats, although it was going to be a push to have it happen. Uh, They did not win a majority, at least not yet. And likewise, the majority that the Democrats had in the House has been depleted a little bit, but the Democrats are still in control. So there was not this blue wave that sort of just, you know, sort of rose up against the period of Trump and McConnell and others. Uh, There was kind of a mixed bag. And I think what we have to recognize is that it has to be in the interests of both parties to have changes to be made. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. I think ultimately one of the other big mistakes that a lot of people uh, misinterpret is that when you take a look at, let's just say, Republican House or senators, the recognition has to be given that they were representing what their districts or their state wanted. Okay, It wasn't that Kansas wanted to have you know, uh, single-payer systems, uh, and uh, the mean Republican senators from their state weren't going along with it. No, they were representing what their districts wanted. 
or their state wanted. And likewise, the same thing is true with Democrats. Okay, they weren't all pushing the, the more AOC, Bernie Sanders side of the coin. A lot of them voted for some of those members in Congress, like the squad was returned to Congress, uh, AOC and company. But other people were not returned, and that's because there's tension about where these lines of division occur. I'd also say that you have to look kind of carefully at this notion about the mandate that came out of this election, because essentially the states that Donald Trump won in 2016 that flipped back to the Democrats were not won by massive amounts. And what we have to recognize is that these states that made up those electoral college votes are still deeply divided. The people that were supporting Donald Trump and the people that were supporting Grassley and uh, McConnell and, and all of the rest of the Republican senators, they have an immense amount of support in their states, Lindsey Graham also. So what happens is it's not in their interest to jettison their political stances just because a new president came in. So I think that there's gonna to continue to be polarization and there has to be a way that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are gonna be able to figure out a way that they can make compromise happen. And that's a very difficult um, boat to row. If you have a majority, it's much easier to get your policies in place. But when you have to negotiate to your right and to your left, it's a little bit harder. I'm guessing specifically with the Senate, uh, I think really almost regardless of how the Georgia runoffs go, there's going to be a lot of talk over the next four years about Mitt Romney, Joe Manchin, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, a handful of senators that you talk about on non-central issues that could, you know, break ties, force 50-50. I mean, we're going to have a lot of think pieces about them, I would say, in the Beltway media, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. Now, what we have to recognize is that we live in a hyper-polarized situation. And we have to realize, you mentioned, for example, um, Susan Collins from uh, Maine. She's been dancing on the tip of a needle for a while. And at the very end, you know, she voted in a way that was not really in the interests of the Republican Party with regards to Coney Barrett, but she was given permission to do so, so she could hold on to her seat. And that strategy ended up working out. But it's very unlikely that Collins is going to become a force uh, supporting the, the Democrats in general. There may be some issues from time to time that are going to come up, but the bottom line is, is that these are different camps. And what we have to recognize, I think also, is that everybody has this notion that the founding fathers were so wise, okay? I kind of take a little different perspective, okay? I realize that they cut a deal. They made every state have two senators, and they based the House upon population. But the reality is, is that many states have very little people, okay? Yet they might have overrepresentation in, let's say, the House or the Senate because of that. You know, I work with a group called Draw the Lines in Pennsylvania, which is an anti-gerrymandering 
project. And it ends up that, you know, my students learn how each district has to be about 750,000 roughly people in a congressional district. And you can draw the lines in different ways to help one person get elected and another person not. But ultimately, each one of these congressional districts is exerting its will on its member of the House. And at the state level, each state's population is exerting its will upon its senators. There used to be this classic kind of concept in political science, which I'm not sure exactly how it would play out today, but I'll explain it very briefly, that there was a fellow by the name of Edmund Burke, who was a member of the British Parliament, and he was involved in a vote in which he personally thought he should vote one way, but his district wanted him to vote a different way. He made a calculation that he was going to do what he felt was right, even though his district didn't like it. Well, he voted the way he he wanted, and he abruptly lost the next election and was never returned back to the British Parliament. What it does is it sets up members in legislative bodies to take on three roles. One is a trustee role where the legislature decides what's best overall, even if it's not necessarily best for their district. A second one is a delegate role where if the district is 51 to 49, they're going with the 51 regardless. And then the third role is the politico, the person that's going to look at what's best overall, what their district wants, and also what's best for them politically. And what you have in the House and what you have in the Senate is a combination of all three types of members. Some of them are trustee members. Some of them are delegate members, and some of them are Politico members. So as a result, they have different calculations on how they want to approach the different issues that are placed in front of them. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.